0: Hello, hello, and welcome to Inside Intercom. So as we talk with more and more Intercom customers and listeners at this show, one common challenge across the board seems to be how to achieve meaningful growth. That is capturing more leads, converting those leads into paying customers, and then making sure they experience their aha moment with your product so that they keep coming back again and again and again. There are so, so many ways to approach this challenge, from marketing tactics all the way down to better onboarding. And so this week, we're launching a new series to explore all of them. That's Inside Intercom on growth. Over the next few months, we're going to pick the minds of practitioners at some of this generation's fastest growing and most successful software companies. Folks that have started growth teams from the ground up. And hopefully, will expose frameworks and philosophies that can be applied back to growing your own business. So to kick off our growth series, I was lucky to be joined all the way from Hong Kong by Siki Chen. Siki was the longtime VP of growth at Postmates, the on-demand delivery service for food, groceries, supplies, and everything in between. Siki founded the dedicated growth team there, which grew to include growth engineering, user acquisition, and growth marketing teams. In our chat, you'll hear Siki explain where his team found the low-hanging fruit in its earliest days, which was crucial in helping them prove out the value of growth to the rest of the company. The line he draws between being data driven and chasing metrics, the values that guided his growth team, and much more. Siki left Postmates very late in 2017 to take a chief product officer role at Glow Station, an Alibaba-backed VR escape room. So we were also able to get into how the growth challenges change when your product is a real-life experience and thus very, very difficult to measure. If you enjoy my chat with Siki, you want to make sure you don't miss any of our future interviews, either in this new growth series or our regular conversations about product management, design, marketing, and more, subscribe to our show over at iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Now, let's kick off Inside Intercom on growth with Siki Chen.
1: You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com.
0: Sigi, welcome to Inside Intercom.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. Really excited to be here.
0: Awesome. Awesome. So we're excited to have you as well. You've had such an interesting career journey to date. I know you did some software engineering at NASA earlier in your career. You've been at small startups. You've been at large, large tech companies that everyone listening to this will know. And you're now at a new, exciting adventure in the world of uh, VR. So could you just quickly walk us through how you got to where you are today?
1: Uh, yeah, it uh, feels like almost a random walk, uh, but as you mentioned, I was uh, first started as an engineer at NASA when I was working throughout college. I worked uh, at JPL uh, in machine vision, so automatic uh, camera calibration for the uh, Mars Curiosity and uh, science uh, MSL rovers, um, and from there, the Web 2.0 bug hit me, and that's when Web 2.0 was still a thing. Uh, so I really wanted to get into the internet industry, and I worked at pretty much the only uh, startup in San Diego at the time, which was a YouTube competitor called Vio. And I was there for about a year, and then I moved to San Francisco to join a search engine startup called PowerSet. Uh, and that's when sort of my entrepreneur career started. Um, in 2007, Facebook came out with the platform, and uh, I developed a game called a Mafia, uh, and that quickly was making $3,000 a day in ad revenue. And I just moved to San Francisco, I was still working in a search engine startup. Um, but I really like working there. So worked there for a few more months and I met my co-founder, Alex, and uh, he said, hey, let's make some more Facebook games together. So we did. And we built another game called Friends for Sale. Uh, and that became the second largest app on the platform, a couple of million DAU. Uh, wow. So that led to uh, VC's calling and I've always wanted to be a founder. So... We ran that company in about two years. It grew to be about forty people and was profitable, but nowhere near as big as Zynga. So in 2010, joined Zynga. I uh, was uh, first uh, director of product for studios, and I ran product management for the company as a whole. And then I moved to China to run the China business. And then in 2012, I left to start a company called Hey, uh, which is the a uh, heck of a roller coaster ride, but ups and downs. Uh, we Built a journal app called Heyday that uh, won Editor's Choice at Apple, and then that wasn't growing, so we pivoted ultimately to a infamous app called Stolen, um, which uh, turned your Twitter graph into a market economy, so it lets a fangirl of Justin Bieber collect Justin Bieber as a card, um, and that got shut down by a Act of Congress. And about in in twenty mid twenty sixteen, uh, we were aqua hired by Postmates, and I was at Postmates as to run consumer product for a few months. And then we started a growth team. And uh, I've been there until last November, where I moved to Hong Kong to do VR. So as you mentioned, you helped build out the growth function at
0: Postmates. How did you guys define growth at Postmates? For instance, was growth marketing part of that umbrella? Or were they often the marketing wing? Was it mostly product solutions to growth? Where were the boundaries drawn, if there were any?
1: Uh, it changed dramatically for the entire time I was there. So when I started, there was just a consumer product team and there was a growth marketing team that was mostly marketing. And what I quickly realized as I was uh, running the consumer product team was that we didn't have very good visibility into user behavior. The amount of instrumentation and quality of instrumentation wasn't quite there. Uh, so the growth team started as really uh, the growth engineering team. And it was myself, a PM, an analyst, and and one engineer. And for the first three months when we started this team, and we had to lobby pretty hard to start it, uh, we just tried to fix data. So we put together a growth marketing stack, an analytics stack. We tried to validate every single event that a user could possibly do. And so, yeah, for a few months it was a struggle because we had a team called growth, and we weren't growing anything, which... You can imagine um, it's not the best place to be when you just join a company, right? <laughs> but you know, once you once we've uh, instrumented most of the customer events and we can see where we are and what people are doing, as you can imagine, if the data wasn't quite good before, there's probably a ton of low-hanging fruit, um, mm-hmm. and so we started chopping those down um, on the sharing side, on the onboarding side, and uh, the low-hanging fruit was very significant. And through that, uh, you. Get a little bit more credibility and trust uh, with um, executives. So that's how growth marketing was folded under growth. And then performance acquisition was folded under growth. And then we became a proper growth team as opposed to just a growth engineering team. And by the end of my career there, about a year and a half or so, um, we had all of the local GMs and city managers also reporting to growth. So you mentioned
0: how hard you had to lobby to get the team started. What was the the struggle or the the tension there
1: that you were having to work to get across? Mostly it was why we need a, another growth team, right? Because uh, we had a marketing team and we had a product team. So there wasn't a whole lot of understanding of how a team called growth or growth engineering fits in. So a lot of that was just putting every credit, bit of the credibility I had joining the company on the table and said, this is... Very useful. We need to understand what is happening inside our product and what our users are doing in order to be able to prioritize. And prioritizing is uh, the most important thing you can do well with product management, because everyone has never has enough resources. You always have a finite amount of things you can do in a finite amount of time. So your output is almost completely defined by how effective you are at doing the right things. And uh, the only way you know what the right things are is to know what is happening. And that was the argument I had to had to make. That that story about having to find the, the low-hanging
0: fruit to quickly prove out the value of the team, I think, is a, is a common one, certainly one I've heard before. So how did you approach prioritization once the team got started? I mean, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit to pick from. Where did you decide to pick from
1: first and why? When, when there's low-hanging fruit, uh, you can start with a growth model. And a growth model should provide you the answer. Right, So if you have one particular feature that could increase uh, new user conversion by 10%, another one that could increase virality by 10%, um, you can throw that into your growth model. And if it's a uh, proper growth model, you can define how much impact do you want to see by when. So in our case, we want to see impact in a very short amount of time, within two weeks. And depending on what the model outputs, you can decide on whether onboarding or virality made more sense. In our case, we had two pieces of low-hanging fruit, so it wasn't much of a trade-off, but we did do onboarding first. And to be able to say, hey, like for all customers coming in who install our app, 10% more order. And that means over the long run, no matter how big we are, no matter what happens, our business has been made 10% larger over the long run was a powerful thing.
0: Yeah, that makes total sense because with a product like Postmates, the user is expecting to see that value almost right away. I mean, they're logging in, they're getting set up because they're hungry and they need something delivered to them.
1: Exactly. And and another challenge with Postmates is... uh, differentiating, right? Because, you know, like people outside of Postmates see it as a very generic product. You know, you have DoorDash and Uber Eats, but Postmates actually does something that none of these other competitors do, which allows you to get anything from anywhere. So they don't have to be a partner with us and we will send a Postmate to pick anything up. So you can go get a Nintendo Switch from Target if you so choose. And part of the challenge was exposing that value proposition. So when I first joined, we did some user testing around that exact user proposition a quality user testing. And that was always a magic moment when people realized that you can do more than food with Postmates. So mm-hmm. a lot of the testing was how can we expose that value early?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, how did you bring that forward as far as getting users educated on what the
1: product can do once they sign up? So a lot of it is we have a very simple product and we show you a number of merchants. And so aside from just the, uh, Blocking of tackling and making sure the onboarding sign-up flow is good. Showing you the right merchants that you actually like had a dramatic impact on our ability to convert a new customer, particularly when we show you a few tiles of restaurants and then we show you the Postman's general store, which which lets you get uh, toiletries, razors, shampoo, and that kind of thing. And uh, that's when people realize, oh, this is a lot more than food and they become a lot more excited about it. And that provably moved numbers by quite a bit. So speaking
0: of where to get started with with growth challenges, one thing that I saw you mention in a previous AMA or interview that I thought was really interesting is you said that early stage companies often confuse growth problems with product market fit problems. So how do you personally distinguish between the two?
1: I've had a hard time doing that because in my last company, uh, Hey Inc., I've always that's probably why we spent two and a half years continuing to work on it, work on a product that didn't really have product market fit, because I thought if we just keep on iterating on it and making it better and like making the growth better, it's going to work, but it never did. So, you know, objectively, it's so much easier to give advice when you're not in the thick of it and you're not working on your own product. The two things are you can look at it qualitatively and quantitatively. Qualitatively, is their excitement and love from your customers? Like, can they not live without it? They are they are all absolutely raving about it. And quantitatively, and not just the first time either, right? Like It's easy to be excited by a first time, but a month two into it, are they still loving it? And quantitatively, you can measure that in engagement or retention. How often are they using it? Are they using it every other day? Two months from now, are they still using it just as frequently? And by and large, if you can show both of those things, then you probably do have product market fit. So a growth team is cross-functional by nature. You mentioned that
0: You started this growth engineering team, but then built it out to include dedicated PMs and designers and all the the other functions that we come to see in what is a classic sense of growth team these days. Did that impact the traits you hired for? I mean, were you looking for the best engineers or product managers for other teams? Or are there certain soft skills in this cross-functional environment that tend to speak louder to you?
1: Yeah, um, definitely in a larger company. Uh, you're looking for more than the base traits, which is, you know, the base traits for a growth person is generally looking for a combination of left brain, right brain, right? I think this is very mm-hmm. common. Um, you want someone who is highly analytical and also highly creative, analytical so that they can prioritize correctly and work on the most effective things, and a creative so that they can come up with the ideas to prioritize. Um, in a larger company, you're definitely looking for someone who... Uh, has a little bit more of the diplomacy and the soft skills to get something done. There is in pretty much all growth teams. You have to is a, it's always cross functional. You have to work with a ton of teams, and it's very very easy to be stereotyped as kind of the arrogant data people who always has the answer. And mm-hmm. we try definitely to to not do that. And in fact, like one of the things that we try really hard to do is. There's this quote, you know, if all we have is data, let's go with data. All we have is opinions, let's just go with mine. And inside our growth team, we try to flip that. We say, if all we have is data, let's, let's go with data. But if all we have is opinions, let's just go with yours, right? Because we don't want to be taking our opinions and arguing against somebody else's opinions. That's not our role. Our role is to bring a little bit of data to um, a larger company and add some balance to it. Um, and that's not always going to be the case, but at Postmates, it was more of a design and intuition driven company. So we felt like that was the right fit for us.
0: Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know that episode two of Offscript, our new series of candid conversations with Intercom, all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing, is out now on YouTube. Here's a teaser featuring our chief product officer, Paul Adams, discussing AI-first customer service. The best place for me to start is that technology only moves in one direction. Once you go through these like before-after moments, you never go back. AI has clearly already shown us that it can help in transformational ways. It has given us a new way to do customer service. And that new way is AI first. The business that provides incredible customer service is the business that will win. And the earlier that people lean into this completely new mindset, the earlier they can deliver this incredible holy grail type of customer experience, it's a huge opportunity for businesses to literally change how people think about them. It's just a matter of time. That's all to come on episode two of Off Script. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel right now, and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. So Postmates certainly wasn't small and scrappy when you got there, but it did grow a lot in the time that you were there. What put the most stress on your growth Or this could be from a structure perspective or process or the way you worked. I mean, what what bent the most as you scaled and how did you respond to that?
1: Taking on new components of growth, um, because, you know, we when we started, we were perfectly happy running growth engineering and making sure that our data was instrumented and put together growth platform. But the organization needed more help. um, And so we wanted to be helpful. Uh, and it's when we were asked to basically, when I was asked to manage competencies where I didn't have any experience, uh, that's always a tough situation to be in. Um, I tend to do well when I have some kind of uh, functional expertise in what I'm doing. And so that was the first real role where I totally didn't have any functional expertise in, for example, performance marketing or SEO. Mm-hmm. So the answer to it was you try to learn as fast as you can, get up to speed as fast as you can. and Use that knowledge to recruit the best people that you can possibly uh, recruit and make sure they're working well with other teams and fitting into the overall system and culture and processes of the growth team as a whole. So
0: how did you approach managing those people with these these skill sets that were more foreign to you? I mean, did you let them go and run with these things or did you have to spend more one-on-one time with them to get yourself familiar with how they were executing on their own
1: initiatives? I try to spend as much time as I could learning. Uh, usually it's first about listening and learning. How, how are they doing things? How are they approaching things? What is their process? How are they measuring things? And trying to figure out if and where we can inject some level of expertise and oversight into it. And for a lot of it, because we had great people on a team, once we got the basics down, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, oversight needed. But for other functions, it wasn't quite the case. So... It's it's gonna be different depending on the, the depending on the quality of the leads that you have. So so much of meaningful growth work, whether it's performance
0: marketing or growth marketing or all the in-product growth changes you're gonna make, optimizing your onboarding, it all comes back to measurement and data. I think you like to say measure first, measure always. Is there a point where teams growth teams can become over reliant on chasing metrics is that is there a line to be drawn or can you never have too much data
1: there totally is that line but yeah measure first measure always was the first uh, of our three values as a growth team at postmates at least um and that would that made sense because you know we were the data driven part of postmates and in a larger organization that was more design intuition driven um, but there is absolutely a point where you're completely over the tracing metrics. And Zynga certainly w- is an example of that. And at Zynga, I observed like two things about being data-driven. Like, being intensely data-driven makes you biased in two ways. One is if you're intensely data-driven, you're biased for things that are easy to measure because you're going to be looking for data, and the data is most easy to measure or the, is the data you're going to see the most of. For example, it's easier to measure re- revenue... Then it is to measure user sentiment. And often those two are exact aus- with each other. And you're also getting biased towards things that are quick to measure versus things that take a while to measure. For example, measuring DAU versus retention. Or even revenue versus sentiment. If you have bad sentiment, maybe you make a few more bucks today, but you're going to have angry users who going to tell their friends. And three months, six months down the line, you're going to have a smaller business. And so as Zynga, I actually played the opposite role where Um, I tried to be the boundaries for, hey, data is great, but we have to design fun games and we have to measure with a long term in mind. So it's going to be different in every culture and product and stage and the context of the organization. But yeah, there needs to be a balance. And I think at Postmates, it worked incredibly well because for a time I was running both consumer product team and the growth team, but over time uh, we split that out. And now uh, the CEO of Secret, um, uh, David Baitow, he now runs the core consumer product team. And so we worked side by side for a time. And that was great. We had a team that was able to completely focus on delighting the user and frameworks and long term. And you have a growth team that's more focused on just being uh, hard headed about data. So measure first,
0: measure always, you said, was one of the three principles for the growth team. What were the other two?
1: Uh, here are the three values that we had at Postmates uh, as a growth team. The first one is measure first, measure always. We believe that if it's worth doing something, then it's worth measuring it. Uh, the second value we had was uh, we prioritize ruthlessly. Prioritizing is the most important thing that we can get right. So we are not satisfied with simply shipping something. Uh, we are only satisfied if we know that it is the most effective thing that we know of uh, to ship. The third thing is we continuously deliver. So we move fast, we try to drive results quickly, and we continuously ship. So today you're the CPO for a very different type of product experience,
0: GlowStation, which is an Alibaba-backed VR escape room experience. I'm probably simplifying that too much, but we can get into that in a minute. But what are the similarities and differences in terms of how you attack growth for this very different kind of more experiential product?
1: Oh, man. I mean, the biggest difference is there's not a whole lot we can measure at this size. So the, the product is actually a series of retail locations where customers actually go buy a ticket and experience it. And when you're acquiring users, you're acquiring dozens a day, right? Obviously, we're franchising, expanding quickly. But at this point, we're just designing a great experience. And so... That's hard to get used to because even when you're working on a digital product and you're testing New Zealand, you can get a couple hundred installs a day. And here we're selling something retail. So that's quite different. The other thing is uh, how different physical design is, right? Like we have to design the interior, the service, the words that people say with each other, all of the edge cases. And you cannot measure everything in the way that you can a digital product. So it's quite different. Um, we try to use as much as we can from what I've done with growth marketing and building a growth marketing stack. But what I've realized as I've been working on this product is most of the experience, we just can't measure and we just have to be okay with it. And that's kind of disconcerting. But at the same time, we know that people love the product. So we have that and we can see and hear them as, as they're using a the product versus, you know, like when you're making an app, they're just interacting on their phone. So that's also quite different. So I would say we are using the, the experience in the places where it makes sense, but it's largely a learning experience for me.
0: So I know you've only been in the new position for a few months now, but going back to when you first stepped foot in the door, what is it that you really felt like you've brought with you from Postmates and your experience there into your new role as CPO at Glow Station?
1: Well, what I took for Postmates um, and the reason why I wanted to join Postmates is my entire career. I've only worked on digital products from, you know, NASA to Zynga to games to my last company has just been apps. And Postmates was really interesting to me because they interact with the actual real world and they work on logistics. And I wanted to understand how to do that and what that's like. And I was blown away by the culture when I joined Postmates. It was an incredibly aggressive operating environment. It's very difficult and slow oftentimes to get things done in real life. And it was a culture that wouldn't take no for an answer. And if we could do it today, we would. And that's probably the biggest thing I took away from Postmates that I'm bringing to Glove Station. A very similar environment where our product itself is digital and it's delivered in a physical environment. So everything from getting licenses from the government to getting construction done to hiring um, is very slow and difficult, but you have to execute very quickly, given that it's a venture-backed company. So I'm very thankful for um, that. Those, those learnings that I got from Postmates and how powerful their culture was.
0: So I'm going to let you nerd out for a minute here. Is this the year that VR finally begins creeping into our everyday lives, or are we still too early in the hype cycle?
1: boy I hope so um I I, th- I I think I think it's early I think we're gonna start seeing it this year but it's gonna really go mainstream next year everything that's possible in the physical world that you could experience is theoretically possible to experience in VR right it's a question of like technology but equally everything many things that are impossible to experience in real life you could experience in VR so the power of that medium is to me absolutely inevitable and it's getting better very 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 quickly but my thesis around how it exactly it goes mainstream and it's not mainstream today and it's kind of in a trough of sorrow is that it will go mainstream outside of the home first and this is after having experienced the product of GlowStation and which is why i joined like the gap between the experience you can deliver somebody with custom hardware outside of the home that's at room scale with enough free space to walk around and freely without wires and what you can get at home, which is mostly a seated experience and your disembodied head to holding two <laughs> controllers, it's enormous. It's a difference between, well, VR today and the holodeck and um, holodeck type of experiences. The constraint is cost and hardware, but the biggest constraint is literally real estate. And that is not going to get cheaper anytime soon.
0: Awesome. Yeah, well, it really seems like the amount of potential there to unlock is is almost boundless at this point. So to come full circle and close out here, Siki, we're going to go through a quick rapid fire round of questions on growth tips and tricks that we're asking all of our next run of growth guests here on the show. So um, quick answers, but feel free to expand on any that you want and let's get into it. So be it from results, personal enjoyment, or both favorite or most underused
1: growth tactic. Oh man, this one. Nobody uses, but I love it. There is a Twitter poll ad unit that I can't believe people don't use, um, where it's basically uh, the most viral ad unit I've ever seen. It lets you choose between two options, and the minute somebody votes, it prompts them to tweet out their vote, and everyone who sees their their tweet gets to, prompted to vote again. So um, for the Mayweather-McGregor fight, we did a Team Mayweather and Team McGregor ad unit. And pretty much we took over an entire hashtag for a cost of about a thousand bucks. Oh, That's awesome. We'll definitely check that out.
0: One book that's influenced your thinking recently and why?
1: Well, this is a book I read, reread once a month, but I really enjoyed the book by Alan Watts. It's just relaxing when you're stressed. And because I'm a pretty left brain person, it helps open up the right brain a bit when I need it.
0: Someone in the growth community that either you look up to or you think that our listeners could learn a lot from.
1: Uh, it's cliche, but I gotta give a shout out to my cousin Andrew Chen. I mean, I know I learned everything I know from him, and I think Andrew's the man. Yeah, he's a man, and I uh, and I think they're doing amazing work at Uber.
0: Your favorite onboarding experience? Because I know you have to be evaluating these things in your
1: personal life. Yeah, my friend Mary Men showed me this app. Uh, I think it's awesome. It's very recent, Sweatcoin. It pays you in cryptocurrency for walking, but they have a Whoa. fantastic onboarding experience. It's almost chat-based, extraordinarily well-designed. I have a hard time naming more, uh, naming just one. Anchor is also great. And what is it
0: that uh, that Anchor does so well?
1: Anchor is a short-form audio podcasting type of app. It democratizes the creation of audio content, and it's a almost purely audio-based onboarding. When I tried it uh, recently, it, it blew me away. It was very well done.
0: You mentioned chat there. Messengers, is this a game-changing new channel for growth? Is it all hype? Is it too early to say?
1: I think it's extremely underrated for growth. I am aware of multiple products that have really quickly reached uh, tens of millions of players through Messenger. I think it properly, and, and some of the things that you can do, it reminds me of the early days of the Facebook platform, and people aren't really talking about it much. I think it's extremely underrated. One app or tool you cannot live without? Um, I've been using, well, the one app I use the most is Asana, but recently Fabulous has been a daily habit for mine, which is not a surprise because it's an app that through cognitive psychology uh, tries tries to create habit change with you through very, very small stuff. So it's extremely well designed and effective. All
0: right, Siki, we'll leave our listeners with this. What's a common mistake that you see growth teams make when it comes to running experiments? What just gets under your skin.
1: Uh, yeah. So, you know, when when you have a great win with an experiment, the result is very obvious. You're going to go and communicate it out when you have a big loss as experiment and things don't go your way. That's also very clear wh- what to do. You stop running it and you look to see what you got wrong. Um, I think the most interesting things are the neutral results when things don't do anything. And usually when you do an experiment, you expect something to happen. And when it doesn't, I feel like that's the most interesting thing, which means that, hey, either something is wrong about your intuition, about your mental model for a user, or you miss something. So I, I find that a lot of growth teams ignore the neutral results or or make them uh, run too long, and they don't spend enough time looking at those neutral results. That is
0: awesome advice. Siki, where can our listeners go to learn more about Glowstation or what you're up to?
1: Glowstation.com, but... Uh, The website is not much to look at right now, um, but there will be news in a few months.
0: Great. Awesome. Well, we'll stay tuned. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me.
1: You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.